If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cheers me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. All right, my friends, good morning. Thanks for being with us. I am charging out of the gate this morning because we have to get ready. Congressman Jim Jordan is going to be here in just a couple of minutes. It's the 21st morning of the ninth month, year of our Lord, 2023. I'm also just kind of fired up because we have a lot of very important things to discuss today. Jim Jordan will come on, come on after yesterday's explosive, yet, sadly, I believe, almost useless um, Judiciary Committee hearings with... Attorney General Merrick Garland. I watched it, I listened to it, I saved notes, and I have audio clips, and I'm still frustrated by the fact that so much was exposed, but so little is going to be done as a result of it. So we're going to talk to Jim Jordan about that yesterday. Of course, he runs that committee, and uh, he'll be with us here in just a couple of minutes to talk about what went down there, and not just what went down there, but more. Dr. Everett Piper at 1010 this morning, and Dr. Michael Parker at 1035. He is a pediatrician and one of those fighting very, very hard to tell the truth about what the Issue 1 in the state of Ohio abortion-on-demand bill does and what it doesn't do. Uh, He's responding to the misinformation campaign being put forth by the proponents of that constitutional amendment. But uh, the big story for yesterday, of course, was testimony of Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the most corrupt Department of Justice in the history of this country. And this is a country that once had Eric Holder declaring that he is Barack Obama's wingman. Merrick Garland tried to say that's not the case yesterday for Our him. job is not to do what is politically convenient. Our job is not to take orders from the president, from Congress, or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm today, 
I am not the President's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and the law, and that is what we do. So he says he is not the President's lawyer, but uh, Chairman of the Judiciary Jim Jordan said that is exactly what he is acting like. He could have picked anyone inside government, outside government. He could have picked former attorney generals, former special counsels, but he picks the one guy, the one guy he knows will protect Joe Biden. He picks David Weiss. The one guy that would protect Joe Biden. So again, very clearly, Merrick Garland says that I'm not the president's lawyer, but every maneuver that I have made as it pertains to the investigation of uh, allegations of bribery, corruption, and fraud involving his son and involving the President of the United States, who was then the Vice President of the United States, is geared toward protecting the President of the United States. He could have picked anyone inside government, outside government. He could have picked former Attorney Generals, former Special Counsels, but he picks the one guy, the one guy he knows will protect Joe Biden. He picks David Weiss. Sounds like a wingman to me. I'm told Congressman Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who ran yesterday's nearly six-hour session with Attorney General Merrick Garland, joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Uh, Mr. Chairman, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm fine, Bob. Good to be with you. So he declared, I'm not the president's lawyer. And uh, yeah. I thought you did a phenomenal job of saying, really? Then why are all of your actions de- seeming to uh, to favor the president and to uh, avoid any speculation or any uh, prosecution potentially of the president by actually going after um, uh, uh, his son, Hunter Biden? And, Mr. Jordan, I, I, I'm really blown away by the fact that they allowed the most serious of charges to expire by way of yeah. the um, yeah. you know, yeah, by way, by way of the uh, statute of limitations. They allowed the most serious because those would be the one. I'm talking about the charges against Hunter that would have warranted and naturally in the course organically led to an investigation of what the president knew at the same time. Yeah, Burisma gets you to the White House. They let the statute of limitations expire for the tax years where he had a huge liability, owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. They just let that run, just let it expire. Uh, and and, and th- th- those were the years 14 and 15 that dealt with the Burisma income. So I, I say this all the time, but th- these four facts, I think, just show how, how I think, simplify the picture. First, fact number one, Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Burisma, uh, makes a lot of money, millions of dollars. Uh, fact number two, he wasn't qualified to be on the board of Burisma. And not my words, not your words. That's what he said. He said he got on the board largely because of his last name, the brand, as Devin Archer said in the, in the, in the deposition, his business partner. Third fact, the Burisma executives asked Hunter Biden, can you weigh in and help us with the pressure we are under? Can you communicate with D.C. and make that happen? Fact number four, Joe Biden does just that. He leverages your tax dollars, my tax dollars, the folks I represent, American tax dollars. He leverages American tax dollars to get the prosecutor who was applying the pressure on Burisma to get that individual fired. And here's what's so interesting, and I said this yesterday, that last fact totally comports with what was in the 1023 form, what the confidential human source told the FBI, and the FBI recorded in the 1023 form, the same form they didn't want to let us have access to. Remember how they drugged their feet, redacted it, no, no, you can't see it? It it, it all squares up, and so... Then what does David Weiss do? He says, for those tax years dealing with that set of facts, 
we're not going to we're going to let the statute of limitations run. They there would that would never happen for any other American. Any of your listeners would have to pay those taxes. But Hunter Biden didn't have to because it was going to lead to the White House. Which is exactly why this is the most corrupt Department of Justice in the history of the United States. And I say that knowing that the previous Democrat, President Barack Obama's attorney general, called himself the president's wingman. I mean, literally sure there to, to cover for anything and everything that was uh, illegal or corrupt or questionable going on at the executive level. Now, I want to go back to a little bit of you. I've got so much ground to cover here with you in very limited time, so I, I appreciate you being here. Representative Nels yesterday slammed him, made him watch and listen to what we have all played and listened to many, many times, Joe Biden arrogantly bragging about how he got the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma, the energy company that his son sat on the board uh, of because of his uh, last name and the influence and the access to Washington. So he made him watch that and, uh, and then questioned him. And he said, if this isn't quid pro quo, I don't know what is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be critical here, Congressman Jordan, because I wanted to hear him squirm and answer that. Congressman Nels kind of basically answered it for him and, yeah. uh, and kind of cut him yeah. off. I, I, I know it's hard because you guys are limited in the time, and if you let a witness filibuster answers, then you can't ask more questions. But I think sometimes right. we need to let them talk, and I wanted to hear him explain that video away. He didn't get an opportunity yeah. to. No, I, I think you're. I think you're. You're right. Uh, uh, Congressman Nels was, I think, making a good point, and he got he got fired up about it, as as I think most people would. But uh, yeah, you, you, it is nice sometimes if, if there's a little opportunity for the for the witness to respond. Um, so did I, I did, did yesterday's events cut deep enough then into into the attorney general to expose that obvious fact? That's, I guess, what I want people to take away, and I don't know if they did. Well, remember what remember what the attorney general his answer most of the time was ongoing investigation, internal yeah. deliberations, or you'll have to ask David Weiss. Those were his three key responses. So David Weiss is scheduled to come on October 11th. Uh, they've committed to that. We'll see if they keep their commitment. Um, we are in the process trying to interview a number of other people. We've already interviewed four people who were part of the investigation into Hunter Biden. Two FBI agents who were the whistleblowers that came forward. Two, uh, excuse me, two IRS agents who were the whistleblowers that came forward, and then two FBI agents who were also part of the case, Mr. Sobosinski, Ms. Hawley. We've talked to them as well. So we want, there's a number of other people we want to talk to at the DOJ prior to talking to uh, uh, Mr. Weiss, but he is now scheduled. They made a commitment. We'll see if they honor their commitment to show up on October 11th. Okay, so uh, again, a lot of ground here. So, so obviously, David Weiss uh, being appointed as the special prosecutor here by by Merrick Garland was done to specifically ensure that the that President Biden was protected. Let's talk about some of the other issues that were addressed yesterday. Uh, specifically, let's talk about the uh, targeting of pro life groups. This was this was pretty fiery. Chip Roy went after him pretty hard, pointing out that the DOJ had prosecuted 126 mm-hmm. instances of crimes by pro life groups, only four by pro choice groups that were far more violent and 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 vandal with uh, vandalism included as well um what, what was your impression of of whether or not uh, again the attorney general was able to defend that or explain that away well the, the facts are all on our side no no i mean he, he he sort of let it let it go and give some of his uh, kind of filibuster type answers in, in, in there but but the fact is what what uh, Congressman uh, Roy pointed out is exactly the case, and this bias towards the other side's position, we saw that with the with the Supreme Court justices when the Dobbs decision was leaked, and the pressure and intimidation efforts that was uh, that was uh, orchestrated against uh, the the Supreme Court justices at their homes in direct violence. You and I talked about this. So there's yeah, while while they may have prosecuted a couple times when the left 
went after churches or pro-life crisis uh, pregnancy centers. The, it, the vast majority of the other way around. And when they come after someone who's pro-life, well, I mean, they raid their home like they did Mark Howe. And, of yeah. course, when that trial, when that case went to, went to trial, he was acquitted in like an hour. So, yeah, definitely there's a bias against the pro-life, but there's a bias against conservatives, whether it's coming after uh, conservative speech, whether it's uh, the double standard on who gets prosecuted, just, or, or the just Catholic, the fundamental The Catholic one. question as well that uh, Representative course, Andrew of brought course. up. Of course, and 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 then the, the the one that we pointed out yesterday at the front end of the yesterday's hearing, uh, David Weiss is a special counsel who is obvious his, his role is to protect President Biden, and then Jack Smith on the other hand is a special counsel whose role is obviously to attack President Trump, President Biden's political opponent in the in the I mean his opposition in the presidential race. Like you can't have more of a double standard than that. No, absolutely not. We're talking with Congressman Jim Jordan in the wake of yesterday's nearly six-hour testimony from the Attorney General Merrick Garland. So many of us have been waiting to get Garland up on that stand. But you're right. He spends almost six hours uh, deflecting the questions, not answering them, saying, that, you know, this is an active investigation. I can't comment. And, of course, the game he plays is he has essentially put almost every major player in all of these events under investigation and then gets to sit up there and say, well, it's an active investigation. Yeah. I can't comment on it. So I guess my point is, or my question to you, Congressman and Chairman of the Judiciary, is was anything accomplished yesterday, given the fact that the AG was able to deflect all of those questions and really has, has to answer for nothing? Well, I think, I think we got a few things that we did get answered. Like, one of the questions I asked him was, did you consider anyone else? And, it, and it's, it's like, so David Weiss, the guy who presides over an investigation where you let the statute of limitations run, where you tip off the defense counsel when you're getting ready to issue a, a search warrant, when you slow walk the investigation according to all the witnesses we've talked to, and, on and, on, and they put together the crazy plea deal that the, that the judge declined to accept. That's the guy that you make special counsel. And I asked him, did you consider anyone else? And he said he hadn't. It was either going to be no special counsel or David White, which, again, I think underscores this, this, this idea that they were going to sweep this all under the rug, but for two things. Two whistleblowers that came forward and a judge in Delaware who called BS on their crazy plea deal. And, but for that, this thing would have been done with. It would have been over. Nothing there. Uh, it would have all been settled, but but they, they, they frankly, I think, got caught, and the whistleblowers came forward, and the judge declined to accept the plea deal. So I do think we got some additional facts on the table. We're going to continue to dig there. And, of course, Chairman Comer, as part of our impeachment inquiry, Chairman Comer is looking to get more access to more business records, and so we'll continue to pursue uh, that angle as well. Chairman Smith and the Ways and Means Committee, some of the information that Mr. Shapley and Mr. Ziegler, the whistleblowers, have brought to the Ways and Means Committee, has to be voted on by the ways and uh, by that committee to be released to the public because it's confidential taxpayer information and so they're going to move in that in that direction i believe and we'll get more information there now the world congressman jordan does not live on twitter but i'm just you know it's it's a place to kind of get at least a cross section of opinions on things and most of the conservatives i read on twitter yesterday are saying when will he be impeached obviously we know next week the 28th is going to be the first hearing for the biden impeachment inquiry anyway but people say after what they watched and watched him obstructing justice yesterday and probably perjuring himself in a number of different ways uh they're saying the same thing about uh, uh attorney general garland do you believe that is something that is still possible and and maybe probable well i think we i think we we're, we're focused on the impeachment inquiry uh you, you know and you think about the executive branch and the various agencies the head of the executive branch of course is the president of the united states and so that's that's where the impeachment inquiry focus is um that's where uh, the, the the speaker mccarthy designated uh, that that we're going to be in this phase of, of oversight we've talked about the distinction there is that 
courts now say, okay, Congress is doing, the House is doing their work under uh, something that's exclusively and expressly a power that they have under the Constitution, which is the impeachment power. And the courts are more inclined to look at that and say if there's a dispute with the executive branch, they're, they're much more likely to side with the House on us getting access to witnesses and documents. So that's why we're in that phase, because we think the facts warrant us going to that phase. So we're going to focus there. But, of course, there's several of these agencies where we think they're, the, the secretary running that respective agency has done a terrible job. My orcas is at the top of the list. Merrick Garland, as you point out, we're, we got all kinds of problems and concerns that we see with, with the way he's run things. Uh, Buttigieg, the way he's ran the transfer. I mean, you could just keep going. But it's a reflection of this administration because, as we've talked before, I don't know that they've done one thing right. Um, just look at the news today and see what's happening on our border. I, I mean, this is almost a daily thing now we've seen for almost now three years. So this is how incompetent, how bad, how well, – I don't, I don't even say it's incompetence. I think the border is definitely intentional. So, um, I do, too. But we're going to, we're, I think the focus is on, of course, the, the president of the United States. Okay, and and, and I, that that is certainly clear. If, if the president were to be impeached and, and and to go through all of this, it would expose a lot of the things done by the people beneath him that he has appointed in these very important positions. I'm glad you brought up the border. Let's talk about two different borders. I want to play a clip here that involves a border that is in Eastern Europe. Over the 583 days of war between February 24th, 2022 and the end of the month, that averages $6.8 billion per month or $223 million per day. There's a lot of things that we need to fix in our country before we borrow money to try to perpetuate a war in another country. And, of course, the Senator Rand Paul talking yeah, about new well aid to Ukraine being included in the uh, upcoming budget bill and in the budget battle. Many are saying if there are any Republicans who vote, well, anybody who vote to send more than the $113 billion that the White House has confirmed that has already been spent on the Ukrainian battle and protecting their border from invasion while doing nothing about ours, uh, then these people need to get out of Washington. You're your thoughts on that whole mess? Yeah, I think Senator Paul's right on right on target um, because, in the end, it comes down to a fundamental question: What's the objective? What's the goal here? Wh- wh- how do we define success? I mean, we've I, I know we've talked before. Is, is is it Ukraine has to get, or excuse me, Russia has to get out of the eastern eastern Donbass region? They call it in Ukraine. Uh, do they have to get out of Crimea? What? What, I mean, remember, they've had Crimea since 2014. They took that under, under President Obama, for goodness sake. So w- what is the objective? What is the goal? No one can tell us. No one can define, okay, once we get to here, we would stop sending money. So it's just like, I'm not going to continue to send. There's no way. I haven't voted for, I don't know how many of these things I voted against. So we can't, we can't, we can't, uh, uh, if we can't define the goal, how, how, why should we keep uh, continue to send American tax dollars there, particularly when, as you point out, we got so many concerns here, uh, like our southern border. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, thousands upon thousands of Venezuelans are riding in on trains now. Now there's thousands yep. of 7,000 Venezuelans crossed the into Eagle Pass, I think, in 72 hours. Uh, we've got videos of Border Patrol agents getting uh, getting these people off of buses and saying, go ahead, you're free. Somebody says, can I go to Chicago? You can go wherever you want. We, we don't care. They literally have, have, have given up. Many of them because they have oh, yeah. no they have no direction and they have no directives. Are they allowed to hold them? So they're basically saying, 
you know, you got people coming in from 165 different countries, people on the terror watch list, people who are cartel members, drug runners, human traffickers, and they're being let off yeah. the buses and they're being told, go where you want to go, because there's just no way for them to even begin to process all of these quote unquote phony asylum claims. So, you know, yep. I, I mean, I, this is, I, I hate throwing, you know, invectives around, but, but this is kind of treasonous. This is an intentional surrendering of American sovereignty. We are allowing our country to be invaded. If these people People were all from one country. If all of these five million plus who have crossed illegally into this country in the last just two and a half years of the Biden administration were yeah. all from one country, we would call it an invasion. But because they're, they're scattered over 165 countries, it's not an invasion, Congressman. No, it makes uh, it makes no sense. This is why I think in the in the funding bill that is coming up, we should insist on one thing: no taxpayer money can be used to process and release any new migrant into the country. Just stop it. Like, say, enough. Just stop it and say, okay, Chuck Schumer, here's the bill. We're going to send that over there to you. If you, if you think it's more important to allow this un, un, open border and, and this unlimited amount of migrants come into the country, if you think that's more important then, and, and you're going to shut down the government for that, okay, go tell that to the folks in New York. Go tell that to Mayor Eric Adams, who gave the speech two weeks ago, talked about how bad the situation was in his city. Go have a debate with your Democrat mayor in your hometown. That's the kind of thing that should be put on this bill. That one simple thing, like we will not use any taxpayer money to process in any way and release any new migrants into the country. You just stop it. And until you do that, they're going to keep coming until you send a message. And so we should insist on that. That is the one thing we could focus on right now. That is totally beneficial for our country, for Republicans, for Democrats, for Americans. Focus on that. And uh, I just hope we can round up the votes to do that, because that, that's where I want to go with this spending bill we're debating right now. Congressman, will you vote against any bill that does not contain that? And will you vote against any bill that does contain more aid for Ukraine? I'm not going to vote to send more aid to Ukraine. And I am, am for doing now we, we got colleagues who want to put more in the bill. Uh, they want to they try to address some spending and some other things. Okay, fine. I, I'm fine with that, too. But one thing I've learned in politics is that one really good issue beats 15 pretty good issues every time. And so sometimes what you have to do is focus on the most pressing thing we see right now, the most pressing thing we see right I'd say there are two, but, again, it's usually best to focus on just one issue at a time when you're dealing in these big political fights. The two big issues are the border I just talked about and, of course, the fact that they're weaponizing the government against we the people. But let's focus on the border because you got a Democrat mayor in the, in the president of the Senate and the, and the minority leader of the House, his hometown, who said enough is enough, we can't handle this. That to me seems to be so, so clear that we should focus on that one issue and no Ukraine funding in this, just that one issue. I feel like this is deja vu when I ask you this last question because I've asked you this mm-hmm. question in many border, uh, uh, excuse me, budget battles over the course of the last several years. Are you willing to shut down the government over those principles? Uh, I don't want to shut down the government. What I want to do is fund the government with that one issue on it. I know you don't want Schumer. to, but are, I mean, are, but, I, but what you? I'm asking, I'm, what I'm asking is, will Republicans in the House though be willing to hold fast, even if it means shutting down the government? Because typically, you know, the Republicans always take the blame, no matter who's in charge. They take the blame whenever there's a government yeah. shutdown but or I a think, threat thereof. So, but 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 good question, Bob. But I think this is one of those situations. If you did it the way I just described, mm-hmm. uh, if the, if there's a shutdown, Chuck Schumer takes the blame. Democrats take the blame because it's like, are you kidding me? 
Your old mayor said he 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 was. Uh, we can't take any more people. They're getting ready to what? I think put put a big tent city in the national park up there. I mean, yep. it's like what are you talking about? Like that's how clear and singularly focused you have to be in these in these big fights over the over the budget uh, as we get to the end of the fiscal year. And to me, that is just it's it's so obvious in my mind. And I'm trying to convince my colleagues to uh, to go that route. Well, I certainly hope they hold fast. I do, even though they're going to be called pro-Putin if they don't want to send the money in this uh, next bill to Ukraine. Uh, it's uh, there. There have to be priorities. I think you outlined them very, very well. I've been called everything. I've been called every name you can imagine. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. We, we shouldn't be sending money to you, any more money to Ukraine. Certainly not without knowing what the freaking goal is. And uh, and then of course this 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 border issue I think is just so obvious. Why we well, wouldn't pick that one simple fight and and, and stand firm on it. I do not know. The two-tiered system of justice was exposed yesterday. We've always known it was there, but it was really, really exposed yesterday in six hours with Merrick Arlen. So thank you for doing that for us. You bet. And we'll, th- and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks. All right, that's Congressman Jim Jordan. Took us to 930. Took him probably longer than he was allowed to stay, but I pushed my luck there. Uh, there and I didn't even get to Ray Epps. I didn't even get to J6, which was also featured yesterday. We'll talk about that part together, uh, but we had to kind of... Uh, pick and choose our battles there in the middle of this conversation. All right, it's 9.30 news time. We'll come back. Always right radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and The Answer. Yeah, 9.37. Good morning. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, we just had Congressman Jim Jordan on, if you missed it, at the top of the show, because he normally comes in at 9.35 on Mondays. Well, I apologize. I can't do much about that. you got to listen more often. you got to make sure you're on time. But, no, in all seriousness, if you missed it, you're going to want to hear it, and um, we're going to replay it probably. I, I really mean that. Um, maybe in the 11 o'clock hour so people can hear it. Yesterday was a huge day on Capitol Hill as the Attorney General was grilled for nearly six hours by the House Judiciary Committee and exposed for being, I don't know, uh, worse than the wingman. Worse than the OG wingman Eric Holder for Barack Obama in terms of what he won't do to protect the Biden family of crime, the first family of crime, as I like to call them. So Congressman Jordan... Um, you know, uh, kind of, kind of, we had a lot of ground to cover there and we, we, we didn't get through all of it. I want to let you hear a little bit more of what he said yesterday as part of his open to the hearings because it lays out some of the facts, uh, and some of the information that a lot of people, you know, it's weird. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, was in a, in a conversation with reporters the other day saying, what evidence do you have to try to impeach, you know, Joe Biden? They have this impeachment inquiry and he listed all of these different things and they said, well, the American people don't see it that way. And he said, that's because you won't report it. Uh, others have said the same thing. You won't report it. Um, so when you have the AG up before the Judiciary Committee, people are watching. You know, and I don't mean just on C-SPAN, but this is going to get coverage. It has to get coverage. It has to be reported because Garland is facing off with many of the accusers as uh, the the House GOP starts this impeachment inquiry of Joe of Joe Biden, and obviously it ties in the Attorney General. So, I think it's important that Jim Jordan got some of these facts out. And while I couldn't replay all of this for him during this important interview time. I want you to hear it now. This is part of what he laid out before uh, Garland uh, began taking questions yesterday. The fix is in. Even with the face-saving indictment last week of Hunter Biden, everyone knows the fix is in. Four and a half years. 
Four and a half years, the Department of Justice has been investigating Mr. Biden, an investigation run by David Weiss, an investigation that limited the number of witnesses agents could interview, an investigation that prohibited agents from referring to the president as the, quote, big guy in any of the interviews they did get to do, an investigation that curtailed attempts to interview Mr. Biden by giving the transit team secret a heads up. An investigation that notified Mr. Biden's defense counsel about a pending search warrant. An investigation run by Mr. Weiss, run by Mr. Weiss, where they told the Congress three different stories in 33 days. They told this committee on June 7th, David Weiss said, I have ultimate authority to determine when, where, and whether to bring charges. 23 days later, June 30th, he told this committee, Actually, I can only bring charges in my U.S. Attorney's District, the District of Delaware. And then to further confuse matters, on July 10th, he told Senator Graham, I have not sought special counsel status. Rather, I've had discussions with the Department of Justice. An investigation run by Mr. Weiss that negotiated a plea deal that the federal district court declined to accept. A plea deal so ridiculous, the judge asked this question. Quote, is there any precedence for agreeing not to prosecute crimes that have nothing to do with the charges being diverted? The response from the DOJ lawyer, I'm not aware of any, Your Honor. A plea deal so ridiculous that the judge also asked, have you ever seen a diversion agreement where the agreement not to prosecute was so broad that it encompasses crimes in a different case? The response from the DOJ lawyer, no, Your Honor, we haven't. An investigation run by Mr. Weiss that not only had a sweetheart deal rejected, but according to the New York Times, there was an even sweeter deal, an earlier deal, a deal in which Mr. Biden would not have to plead guilty to anything. Four and a half years and all that, and now we get a special counsel. Now we get a special counsel, and who does the attorney general pick? David Weiss, the guy who let all that happen. He could have selected anyone. He could have picked anyone inside government, outside government. He could have picked former attorney generals, former special counsels, but he... He picked whom? We know who he picked. He picked the one guy, the one guy that, that allowed everything else to happen and who would not do anything that might jeopardize the presidency of the United States. Anybody, anybody willing to sell out justice for the, for the direct specific purpose of protecting the president because of corruption allegations involving his son uh, cannot possibly remain as the attorney general. Anybody who would do that cannot possibly remain as the attorney general. He picked a guy, David Weiss, who he knew would protect the president despite uh, uh, Garland actually declaring, I'm not the president's lawyer. It is exactly what he acted as. He could have picked anyone inside government, outside government. He could have picked former attorney generals, former special counsels, but he picks the one guy, the one guy he knows will protect Joe Biden. He picks David Weiss. And here's what the AG said in his August 11th announcement of David Weiss as a special counsel. Quote, I am confident that Mr. Weiss will carry out his responsibility in an even-handed and urgent manner. Urgent manner? Every witness we've talked to, the two FBI whistleblowers that came forward, Mr. Shapley, Mr. Ziegler, the two uh, uh, FBI agents on the case, Mr. Sobosinski, Ms. Holly, they've all said this thing was anything but urgent. Anything but urgent, so much so that they let the statute of limitations lapse on the most serious charges against Hunter Biden, because following those charges would have led them to the White House. 
to Daddy Biden, to the big guy, to Pops. All right, I don't want to beat that into the ground. That was very important. But I do want you to hear this part. This is something I referred to in my interview with Congressman Jordan that was critical, um, in my opinion. Uh, And again, I know it's tough. They give each of these members of the committee just five minutes to elicit responses from the uh, from the uh, 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 witness giving testimony. And if the witness decides to filibuster, then they can't get any more questions in. So they kind of have to be aggressive in cutting them off and so forth. But sometimes I need to hear the answer. And yesterday, uh, Representative Troy Nelson from Texas he made Joe Biden listen to and watch, or excuse me, he made Merrick Garland listen to and watch the Joe Biden condescending, arrogant bragging of getting the Ukrainian prosecutor that was investigating his son's company, meaning Burisma, on which uh, Hunter Biden sat on that board. Uh, he made him listen to him brag about how he got them fired in order to... Uh, to uh, 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 take the pressure off of Burisma, and in exchange, a billion dollars of American taxpayer money goes to Ukraine. You've heard this. I've heard this. I've played this for you countless numbers of times on the show, but I promise you nobody's playing it for uh, Merrick Garland, the AG, until yesterday. So Troy Nels made him watch and listen to this. I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev and... Uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they, had, they were walking out to press conference and said, no, nah. I said, I'm not gonna, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. So he made Merrick Garland watch that. And what I wanted him to do then was to stop talking and let Merrick Garland respond to it. Ask him, which he did. If this isn't quid pro quo, I don't know what is. What is quid pro quo? I wanted to watch Garland defend that and the decisions that were made as a result of that. But instead, um, Representative Nels basically just cut him off and answered for him and said, it's, you know, it is quid pro quo. And the American people agree with me. I want to hear witnesses squirm. Let them, give them a little bit of rope. And again, I know it's hard because you have to balance letting them talk with getting all of your points in in your very, very short five minutes of time. I can't imagine it. It would be very difficult for me to do. I'm very verbose. I'm very, you know, uh, explanatory. I like to explain things sometimes to, uh, to, to, a, to a fault. So I get it. I know how hard it is, but I really wanted him to be able to give, um, to give uh, 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 Merrick Garland not only an opportunity, but to compel him to respond as to whether or not that's quid pro quo and what do you see that as. We already know how we see it, but I wanted him to give Garland an opportunity, enough rope to hang himself there. So he would stop looking into Burisma, where Hunter was on the board. Would you agree? All right, let's let the American people decide. Play the clip. Play the clip. Remember going... Uh, we just listened to it, so we're not going to listen to it again, but here we go. Biden, in his arrogance and role as the vice president in this country, saying if you don't fire Shokin, 
The United States hasn't given the $1 billion loan. Why would Joe Biden say that as the vice president? Why would he say such a thing? Was it policy? Was it our policy at the time? Yes or no? It wasn't. I have documents here. Interagency Policy Committee dated a point of information. Is the gentleman ever going to let the I'm on my time pipe down. Saying Shokin had made. See, now that part, it's weird because, you know, I, like, like Nadler, who wanted <laughs> Garland to be able to answer there, so did I. But I also appreciate Troy Nell saying, you know, exactly that. Pipe down. Don't, this is my time. But I did. I wanted Garland to have enough rope to hang himself with, to expose the corruption or to stammer and stutter his way through. Something is what I wanted. I belong to the gentleman from Texas. He's made significant reforms, Shokin did. Matter of fact, John Kerry says he was impressive. And you know, within a few months after Shokin was fired, they appoint a prosecutor that said, we're not going to look in the Burisma anymore. Cancel that. Forget it. We're not looking in the Burisma. Boom. Here comes the million dollars. Joe Biden threatened the Ukrainian president and the prime minister. Everybody can see it to fire Shokin or the United States won't give the billion dollars. If that is not quid pro quo, sir, what is? I will tell you what it is, and America agrees with me. It's bribery, and it's impeachable. Are you going to do something about it? I bet I'm, you not, I'm, and that's why you, sir, also need to be impeached. See, there, see that's, that's just, I'm sorry, again, acknowledging the difficulty of the job. That's poorly executed by, by Representative Nels. When he said... Is that, uh, if, if that is not quid pro quo, sir, what is? He needed to be quiet there and let Garland answer as to whether or not that was quid pro quo. I would love to hear Joe Biden himself. I would love to hear Garland. I would love to hear Weiss. I would love to hear anybody involved explain away the billion-dollar extortion fee, essentially, uh, that Biden used there. A billion dollars of American taxpayer money going to Ukraine only if you take the pressure off of my son's company, the the company on, on whose board he sits. That's what needed to happen there, but you heard it. You know, uh, when, when Garland started to answer, Nels cut him off. And, and then at the end, the same thing, are you going to do anything about it? And then, no, you're not. I want him to answer those questions so that we then have more evidence and more information, uh, you know, to to move, to use when we move Everybody forward. Everybody can see it. The fire Shokin or the United States won't give the billion dollars if that is not quid pro quo, sir. What is? I will tell you what it is, and America agrees with me. Don't don't you tell us? We know what we think it is. Let him answer that. It's bribery and it's impeachable. That's what we wanted him to say. Are you going to do something about it? I bet you not, and that's why you, sir, also need to be impeached. Well, he does, and I asked Jim Jordan about that. Um, and Jim Jordan's response to me was, our focus now has to be on September 28th. That's one week from today. September 28th is going to be the first impeachment inquiry hearing that is held in the Oversight Committee. That's a big deal. And he said, the bottom line is here, all of this circles back to the executive branch. You know, all of this is taking place in the executive branch, including the DOJ. But the head of the executive branch, Jim Jordan, told me, is, of course, the president of the United States. So essentially, he is saying, while, you know, there are impeachable offenses being committed, I think he mentioned Mayorkas, too. Mayorkas should be, he said. But we can't run impeachment inquiries on Mayorkas and Garland and Biden all at the same time. The bottom line is, those two positions respond... uh, uh, report to the exec, the chief executive of the country, which, of course, is the president. So essentially, all of these things are going to be covered by the impeachment inquiry of Biden. Now, 
All of that stuff was very, very important, as was the question that I asked him <clears throat> about the uh, budget battle and whether or not we are willing to face a shutdown. And, uh, you know, of course, that is always devastating for Republicans. But why? Because the legacy media, the mainstream media, the corporate media, call it what you will, the Democrat, you know, national uh, propaganda machine that is the mainstream media, uh, they always make sure that Republicans pay the price for threats to shutdowns or shutdowns themselves. And then what they will do, and I, you, I asked Jim Jordan this too, I said, you're prepared to be called, uh, you know, a, a, a tool of Putin if you decide you're, you're going to hold up a budget bill from passing over aid to Ukraine. They're going to say you're a Russian asset. And he, of course, said uh, they've been calling me that and a number of other things for a very long time. But Senator Rand Paul, I'll play this again for you. I uh, played it for Congressman Jordan. But Senator Rand Paul has kind of laid it out there as well. What we cannot do is continue to fund that Ukrainian war effort um, when we have so many things that we are not funding here with respect to protecting our own country and our own people. The Ukrainian border matter. And he, by the way, I like that Jim Jordan said today some of the same stuff that I said yesterday about no end in sight. What, how does one define victory? How does one define, you know, when, when Joe Biden says that we will fund the Ukrainian war effort no matter how much, meaning money, for however long it takes, meaning what at the end? We don't have the answer to that. How does it end? As long as it takes to do what? And you just heard him say, you know, drive them out of the Donbar province or drive them out of Crimea as well, drive the Russians out of where. You know, we don't even know what victory looks like here, and yet we're supposed to keep funding it. And Senator Rand Paul says, not anymore. I rise to put the leadership of the House, the Senate, and the President of the United States on notice. I will not consent to any expedited passage of any spending bill that provides any more American aid to Ukraine. It's as if no one has noticed that we have no extra money to send to Ukraine. Our deficit this year will exceed $1.5 trillion. Borrowing money from China to send it to Ukraine makes no sense. It's not as if we have some sort of rainy day fund sitting around trillions of dollars at a pot of money and we're just going to send that to Ukraine. We're going to borrow it. When we borrow it and create new money to pay for that borrowing, we create the inflation that is plaguing our economy. He's right. Every single step of the way, we cannot continue to fund the Ukraine war for a lot of reasons, including, as he pointed out, the impact on our, our uh, on inflation and our own cost of living, and the moreover, because we have just as much of an invasion going on at our southern border as Ukraine does with their border with Russia. The reality is that, and I said this to Jim Jordan again, you can tell me if you agree or disagree when we talk today, if the 5 million illegal border crossers in just the Biden years were all from one country, pick your country, I don't care. I don't care if it's Russia or China or Uzbekistan. I don't care. If all of them came over from one country, we would be screaming about an invasion. Right? Militarize the border. Stop the invasion of 5 million Uzbekistanis. Or Romanians, or I don't care, pick a country. It doesn't matter. We would say we're being invaded. But because they represent different countries, it's not an invasion. It's still 5 million human beings all pouring across that border, exploiting our weak, feckless immigration laws, particularly our asylum laws, and, uh, and, and there's nothing that we can do about it.
or at least nothing anybody is willing to do about it. All right, it's 9.56. We're going to take a time out. We had a lot to cover there. Again, I apologize we didn't open up the phone lines yet, but we'll get there. Uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Everett Piper next, however. Stay here on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right, hour number two underway now. It is seven minutes past 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. It's the 21st morning of the ninth month, the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, we had Congressman Jim Jordan in the first half hour of the program. We covered a lot of ground over the uh, testimony yesterday offered by the Attorney General Merrick Garland. I will expect your responses to some of what you heard coming up in about a half an hour or so. Actually, I think fully in the 11 o'clock hour will be open, but... Uh, if you missed that interview, you can catch it at whkradio.com on the podcast page. It'll be up there just a little bit later today. We may even play portions or all of that back in the 11 o'clock hour, too. But for now, as it is Thursday, it's time to um, engage in the culture war. This is what we have been uh, drawn into. We did not choose this fight, but it is here, and we must win it. And joining us now is one of our leaders. As far as I am concerned, Dr. Edward Piper is a former university president, best-selling author, twice-weekly columnist with The Washington Times. He is a podcast radio host. You should check out The Rebellion wherever you get your podcasts. And he is a county commissioner in Osage County, Oklahoma. Congress, er, Congressman. <laughs> Sorry, I just flashed back to uh, Jim Jordan a moment there. Dr. Piper, good to have you back on the program. How are you? Always good to be on your show, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Would you turn down the title of congressman if it was earned? I was going to say thanks for the promotion. I guess. (laughs) Is that a promotion? I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great point. The way Congress is right now, I don't know if that would be considered a promotion. All right. uh, So, Dr. Piper, we're going to dive right into uh, uh, your realm, which, of course, is education. Interesting column this week for the Times that ran on Saturday. Uh, last week we spoke about Ryan Walters, the state superintendent of schools in Oklahoma, and you praised him for uh, tying uh, Prager University lessons and, uh, and messaging and so forth into the curriculum with uh, Oklahoma schools. Today you're also praising him for getting rid of educators, or at least members of the state's Department of Education. Tell us why. Well, Ryan Walters is being excoriated by the left right now. They hate him. <clears throat> The Department of Education in Oklahoma hates him. I like him, him already. The, the Oklahoma Education Association, which is a subgroup of the National Education Association, they despise him. And I think you're right, absolutely right. Whenever anybody dislikes those organizations or does something to offend them, they're probably on the right path. The Oklahoma Education Association is radical left, just like every other uh, umbrella that uh, organization that represents the teachers unions they don't like they don't like what ryan walters is doing and he has had over 80 employees of the department of of education in oklahoma resign or he has terminated them one or the other and as the result they have called for his impeachment now that should tell everybody that ryan walters is doing something right and as you know bob in the article that i wrote i'm arguing that ryan walters would be this is a good first step 
to terminate or to get rid of 80 employees from the Oklahoma Education Association and the Department of Ed, yes, great. But we'd be better off just to shut down the whole monstrosity. Why? I mean, look at what's happened over the last 30, 40 years under the auspices of federalized education. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, Bob, less than 20% of the students in Tulsa, Oklahoma, are proficient in reading, writing, or mathematics. We're just doubling down on dumb. This common core curriculum is, by definition, the dumbing down of education to the common, to the average. And I would hope that people would want exceptional education, excellent education, and not just common education dictated from some bureaucrats, either in Oklahoma City in our case, in your case, Columbus, Ohio, or as it goes in the nation, from Washington, D.C., When I was a president for 20 years, or just shy of that, of a university, I never presumed to tell my faculty what syllabus to write or what textbooks to use or how to construct their lesson plans. I hired good scholars, and I released them to teach. I did not micromanage them, and they would have had a fit if I would have tried. But yet, when it comes to secondary and elementary education, we're allowing these dictates from above the the educational class telling everybody else in the nation what ideas are acceptable and what ideas are not. And that's what's done under the auspices of Common Core. Ryan Walters has stood against that. People are resigning or getting fired in mass, and good for him. He'd be better off if the whole operation were shut down and you return education back to local communities, local schools, and let teachers construct their own lesson plans and release them to teach your kids. And if you don't like what they're teaching your kids, get on the school uh, board and change it. Take control of your education locally, and we'd be better off for it. Wallach-a-doodle. Okay, um, Dr. Piper is continuing. We just had a uh, microphone glitch. Uh, Mike cut out on us there. He could not hear me, and in fact, I don't think anybody else could either. Dr. Piper, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I, okay. I, I don't know for sure what happened, Bob. Sorry about that. No, no, what happened What happened was on this end. It was a microphone cutout. You couldn't hear me. Nobody else could, as a matter of fact. There was a glitch on the mic, but we are good now. What I was saying uh, into a dead microphone at that moment was you hit on one of the things that I was going to say in response toward the end of your 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 commentary because you started out by saying as a university president, you would never, uh, uh, you know, tell your your professors what to teach or how to teach or what, uh, you know, uh, materials and resources to use. You trust your vetting. You trust your own judgment when you hired them to go and do the right thing. But what, at the end of it all, <clears throat> a lot of teachers are radicalized. A lot of, you know, and, and at the university level, but also at the lower education levels as well, they're radicalized. And if we don't tell them what to teach, they could go off on their own. But you kind of answered that, that at the end. And that is where local school board candidates need to step up and step in, um, rather than, as you say, doing this from a top-down approach. Yeah, uh, basically the solution to education in our country is to take control of it locally. You have a local school system, and it should be answering to the, it should be listening to the voice and answering to parents. You have a, a responsibility to educate your kids. As a Christian, I believe it's your biblical responsibility. You are to train up your children in the way they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart. And that includes everything. That includes teaching them in the home, teaching them in the church, and teaching them in the schools. There was a time when schools were run by the local communities. 
the community hired a principal, hired a superintendent, charged those people to run the local schools, and the schools reflected the values and the ideas that the local community held dear. And we've lost that by allowing education to become federalized and become common, to become average, and to allow the educational class, the elites, to tell us what to teach our kids. And as a result, they don't know how to read or write or count. The way to solve the problem is to take control locally. Well, the results speak for themselves, no question about it. So, as you pointed out, you would call for in in the in your column, uh, you know, the complete uh, uh, shuttering of the entire Department of Education in Oklahoma. I assume, and I think we've talked about this briefly in the past. You would do the same thing federally, right? Well, what what good is it doing us? I think the rhetorical question here is: Why are we are we getting better education by spending billions of dollars? in a bureaucracy that presumes to tell local communities what to teach. Why is that better than just hiring good teachers that know how to teach math and letting them do so? Letting good teachers that know how to teach civics, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, and letting them do so. Why do you need to spend money anywhere, whether it be at your state capital or your national capital, to enhance that? What good is it? Keep the money local, don't launder it through the tax system and lose a major portion of it, and then have them give some of it back to you to do what? To dumb down education to what's common. What good is it to do that? Yeah, very well said, and I I concur. Uh, I think a lot of conservatives who are concerned about education and the direction and the results that you spoke of in this country have been saying uh, step number one is to literally abolish the uh, United States Department of Education. It does not need to be a big bureaucratic, uh, you know, giant that that dictates down and really accomplishes nothing. Education does need to be local. I concur. Dr. Piper, let's move on to topic number two, which is column number two for you this week in the Ask Dr. E advice column, if you will. Uh, Dr. E, I was recently in a debate with my older son who says my church's involvement in the political arena is wrong. My son argues that America was founded as a secular nation. <laughs> I, it says I read this question, by the, or this uh, question to you, I was kind of chuckled to myself the way I am now. Talk about a fundamental misreading and misunderstanding of the founding of the country. He argues that America was founded as a secular nation and that religion has no place in our form of government. He says Christians should keep their religious beliefs and values to themselves, honor the separation of church and state, which I also chuckle at, and stay out of politics. How should I respond, asks Concerned Dad from New York. You did exactly what I had hoped you would do as I read your column, and uh, and I'll let, everybody, I'll let you tell everybody what you did. Well, I basically let somebody else write my column for me, and that is our founding fathers that know a little bit about the founding of our country than anybody else, probably. I mean, they're the ones who gave birth to this country and set the cornerstone of constitutional liberty for our country. Was it secular? Was it void of any reference to Christianity or faith? Absolutely not. For example, John Jay, president of the Continental Congress, said, the Bible is the best of all books for It is the Word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and the next. Apparently, he didn't think that Christianity should be left out of the public conversation. Then you have James McHenry, signer of the Constitution and delegate to the Continental Congress. He said this, The Holy Scriptures can alone secure to society order and peace and to our courts of justice and our constitutions of government purity and stability. Then we had, oh, here's a good one. I'll read this, and then I'll close with John Adams's seminal quote on the integration of Christianity, religion, into the public square. Teddy Roosevelt said this, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and intertwined 
with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally impossible for us to figure unto ourselves what life would be if these teachings were removed. We should lose almost all of the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals. Almost every man who has added to the sum of human achievement of which the human race is proud has based his life's work uh, largely upon what? The teachings of the Bible. And then John Adams, everybody's heard this one. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, and it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And I go on and on. I cite Benjamin Franklin. I cite Benjamin Rush. I cite Woodrow Woodrow Wilson. And then I go back back to Thomas Jefferson. Everybody says he was a deist, and he he constructed this wall of separation between church and state. Well, yeah, he did reference it. It's not in the Constitution, but the reference to the wall of separation, as everybody who listens to you should know, because you've told them over and over again, it comes from Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Church, who was nervous about what? The government intruding into the church. The wall is there to protect the church from the government. The wall is not there to keep the church out of civic life. It's to protect us. It is not to restrict us. And Jefferson makes that very clear. He says, no nation has ever existed or been governed without religion, nor can it be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has ever been given to man, and I, as chief magistrate, as president of this nation, am bound to give it sanction. And I shall need the favor of that being of God in whose hands we are who led our fathers and to whose goodness I ask you to join in supplication, that he, God, will enlighten our minds and guide our counsels. Does it sound like Jefferson thought that Christianity, religion, should be kept out of government? Absolutely not. Very, very well said. And, and it's kind of, I kind of laughed also when you said you didn't write your column this week. You let the founders write it for you, and you did. And but you had to collect them but and assemble them, but you were right, and they were right. Just for the purposes of discussion, though, you might even call this devil's advocacy, but just to ask the question, what many people have a problem with are when you have radical preachers taking taking faith and using the pulpit for political means that are not necessarily uh, positive. And what I'm speaking of is people like Jeremiah Wright. We all remember listening to Reverend Jeremiah Wright, Barack Obama's own personal pastor uh, in Chicago, who made those extraordinary speeches that we all played and listened to during the campaigns for Obama in the first and second time around, uh, in which he talked about how 9-11 was the chickens coming home to roost. He was using his spot, like I said, in front of his congregation to make political points that actually were harmful, I think, and I think that's where the danger comes in, you know, is who gets to judge what politics get to go into what pulpits. Well, we do live in a country now that is not the same country, the same culture as our founding fathers uh, gave us. We have, we don't embrace Christianity to the extent that we did when Woodrow Wilson said what he said, and when Teddy Roosevelt said what he said, and when Jefferson and George Washington and John Jay and uh, John Adams wrote what they wrote. We've become a more secular culture. So the worry is, well, what's going to happen if you have total religious freedom in the public square? Are you going to allow Satanists to put up uh, plaques right next to the Ten Commandments? Well, what we're going to have to decide is do we think Christianity and our argument for a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and Christian engagement in culture can win the day? 
We're at a point in our culture, I believe, where we're going to have to debate, go nose to nose, with aberrant worldviews, mm-hmm. or we're going to have to accept that we allow the elites in Washington, D.C. to shut down all debate, all worldviews, including Christianity. I trust the truth to win if you give an open forum in the public square. If you want to debate a Satanist, bring them on. We'll debate them. We'll see which worldview works best for our culture and for our kids. I think that's very well argued, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Piper. Let's uh, let's move on to a bit of a different story. This is one that I would chalk up as as being good news for change, um, especially as it pertains to education. So we're kind of going back to your first subject today. But hundreds of students in a suburban Philadelphia school district walked out of class. I saw the video, and we are literally talking hundreds. It's not just a few people willing to battle the quote-unquote cancel culture that will indeed come for them if they don't you know, stand up for the quote-unquote trans rights of their classmates and so forth. We're talking hundreds. Walked out of class this past Friday, after the local school board there failed to enact a policy requiring transgender students to use the restroom corresponding to their biological sex. So the school district, in their infinite ignorance, says anybody can use any restroom because we want to be affirming and positive and inclusive. And the kids said no, hundreds of them. Girls especially were very upset they did not and do not want biological males. And when you're at the high school level, you're talking about sometimes men, 18 years old, um, in their bathrooms and in their locker rooms and in their shower rooms if there are sporting events and so forth. These kids stood up, Dr. Piper, and that to me, it makes me feel good given uh, the direction that Gen Z is uh, is taking in this country right now. Well, I, th- I think that's an example of what we just discussed. You've got two worldviews. You've got the religion of trans identity, and it really is. It's a religion. This is a worship of, it's Gnosticism. It's, it's the denial of the body. It's the, the denial of the biology, of reality, of science, and the elevation of this uh, esoteric uh, uh, self that is subjectively defined. It's the worship of that self rather than the worship of the real God. It's, it's, a, it's a competition of worldviews. But yet, in the public square, in a public school, you have these kids that are rising up and saying, no, there's a better worldview. There's a worldview that honors science, honors reality. There's a worldview that actually respects women and actually acknowledges that females are a fact, and they're not a fabrication and fantasy of some dysphoric male. We're going to protest until you acknowledge our worldview is better than this broken worldview of giving women access, excuse me, giving men access to what women rightly deserve. And they'll win, because who can disagree with these kids? I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Who can disagree that girls, women, females should have their own bathrooms? Who can disagree that biological males should stay out of female locker rooms and showers? Who can disagree with Riley Gaines when she says, no, this is a female sport. This is not something that a male should be able to steal from us. Everything that feminism has fought for is being lost at the hands of this fantasy. Riley Gaines should be the woman of the year. She shouldn't be excoriated by the left like she is. And I think she'll win because it's hard to argue against her with a straight face. And thank the Lord for these kids. It's hard to argue against them, too, because they are showing that there are two worldviews here. There's one that's good. There's one that's bad. There's one that's evil. There's one that is, is just. And they're, they're in mass rising up 
and marching for the truth. And I think the truth will win at the end of the day if people have the courage to express it boldly like these kids are. Yeah, it is. It is every bit that. It is courageous. It is gutsy. And again, knowing that they're probably going to face some backlash, knowing they're going to face some, uh, you know, some cancellation and so forth, some exclusion, isolation and so forth, uh, for them to do this. And as I said, Gen Z is a hard, is taking a hard, hard left turn because everything that they face, everything, whether they turn on their television screen, look at an ad, turn on their phones, walk into a classroom, uh, clubs, virtually everywhere they go, they're being told to be inclusive and to be diverse and so forth. And that means, um, it, like I said, it's just a massive left turn for that generation. So for these kids in this time to have the guts that they did, I think is a huge step forward. And hopefully, if it's given enough publicity and promotion, it will lead to other kids realizing, hey, we can do the right thing too. Dr. Everett Piper, great job as always, my friend. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Bless you. Take care. That's Dr. Everett Piper. It's 1028. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. Um, We've got more to talk about. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about issue one here in just a few minutes. Issue one in the state of Ohio coming up on November 7th, which is the Anytime On Demand Abortion Rights uh, Bill and beyond. They're they're going to some drastic um, measures to promote this thing. And in fact, dishonest measures. We're going to have a pediatrician and doctor tell us the truth about what this bill does. Dr. Michael Parker will join us. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on The Answer. All right, 1037, they call it reproductive care. They call it reproductive rights. What it is, it's an anytime on-demand abortion bill. And, in fact, it goes much, much further than that. Beg your pardon, it's not a bill. This is not in the General Assembly. This is a constitutional amendment that we will decide on on November 7th. I want you to listen to something. I want to address the medical misinformation that's in the recent ad of proponents of Issue 1 on the November ballot. This initiative would enshrine abortion through all trimesters of pregnancy in the Ohio Constitution. They want you to believe that treatment for ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages would not be allowed under current conditions. This could not be further from the truth. These conditions are entirely different from elective abortion, which intentionally takes the life of an unborn child. In the case of miscarriage, the baby has already passed, and medical and surgical treatments are appropriate to remove the pregnancy. In the case of ectopic pregnancy, the mother's life is in danger. To not do any type of surgical procedures would place her life in danger, and both the baby and the mother would be lost. Ohio, we're smarter than this. Don't believe their lies. Vote no on issue one. That is the voice of a long time, in fact, about 30 years, three decades of practice as an obstetrician and uh, gynecologist, Dr. Michael Parker. He is from Central Ohio. He is also the immediate past president of the Catholic Medical Association. He's active in a number of pro-life causes, and he lent his voice to truth and uh, in response to some of the misleading and, in fact, outright lies and deceptions being put forth by the pro-issue one, uh, pro-abort uh, side in the upcoming election. Dr. Michael Parker joins us now to expound upon that. Dr. Thank Thank you for the time. How are you this morning? Bob, I'm doing great. How are you? It's great I'm to be doing, back with you. It's good to have you again. You know, I, it's it's funny when, uh, it's not funny, it really, that's the wrong word. It's, it's just interesting. They seem to have such um, confidence in the argument, uh, you know, and in the position that they take on this. 
yet they can't let their own position stand on its own. They have to resort to lies and deceptions. Rather than saying this is the most important thing because we believe we should have the right to choose whether or not our baby lives or dies, they're trying to say, well, if the if the pro-lifers have their way, they're going to let moms die on the table over a dead baby inside of them. They're going to let moms die uh, over a perfectly treatable condition. So it, it's, it's interesting to me if they really, really believed in their position on this, why would they have to resort to all of this deception, Doctor? Well, I think they, they, I think they have to rely on this deception to play to the emotional side of this argument rather than playing on the factual side of what medicine tells us. And when you know the facts about what abortion is in the state of Ohio, the current laws in Ohio that regulate abortion and what abortion does to the baby and the woman, you lose the argument every time. So they have to play to the emotions of the Ohio voters to try and get them to support this amendment, not based on facts, but based on emotions. How do you respond to anybody who would criticize your position on this as saying you're the one being emotional here? You're letting your faith um, get in the way of your your uh, practicing of medicine here, because, again, you are um, the media past president of the Catholic uh, you know, um, uh, Medical Association. Uh, and so they would say that you're letting you're letting your emotions actually drive your decisions here rather than what science says. Actually, that couldn't be farthest from the truth. While I am a person of faith, faith directs reason. And based on reason, I can make a logical decision that when I have a pregnant woman in my office or in front of me in the emergency room or wherever I may be treating them, I'm taking care of two patients at that time. And my job as an obstetrician gynecologist who preside, provides life-affirming care is to treat both of those women, uh, those patients with dignity and respect and to try and get the best outcome for both. Sometimes we can't get a good outcome for the baby, but we always want to work so that we can affirm life in both situations and do what we think is medically appropriate. So while I am a person of faith, my decisions within medicine are driven by a dignity and respect for both the woman and the baby in making proper medical decisions that will have hopefully the best outcome for both. Yeah, and that's what one would expect of a physician, uh, you know, and, and however you arrive at reason, uh, you know, whether it's faith directed or, or otherwise, that is the reality of the situation, what you're trying to do, and what they're accusing you to do, let me rephrase, what they're accusing you, Dr. Parker, of doing is putting your faith above the health and the safety and the protection of the pregnant woman. Which, by the way, they hate the fact that we're calling them pregnant women in the language of this uh, amendment uh, as certified by the Ohio mm-hmm. Supreme Court. Uh, but they're saying that you're putting your faith and your belief in the potential life of an embryo, or as they like to say, a fetus, over the actual life of a woman. How do you answer that? Well, I think you could say the same for the opposite side of the argument. They're putting your dogmatic ideology ahead of reason when it comes to this uh, radical amendment uh, to enshrine abortion in our state constitution. Uh, Their ideology is leading them and not the medical science. And so you could say the same argument for them. Yeah, uh, that that's very true. Uh, And, and what, what's really, I think um, of going to be of paramount importance in this election uh, and the the decision we're going to make on November 7th on this amendment is, um, a belief in what is right for both patients. 
the state of Ohio has in existence already the heartbeat law. It was a heartbeat bill for a very long time, and it was slow walked, and nobody wanted to sign it. Finally, Mike DeWine signed it, and it's being challenged in court, but it's a heartbeat law. And Dr. Parker, as a 30-year-plus OBGYN, can you explain the heartbeat law uh, so that a layman can understand this? I I don't think it's that difficult. To me, it means there's a second being present when there are two hearts present. But, But the left is trying to say the reason that law is flawed is because it's not an actual heartbeat. It might be some sort of a flutter. They're calling it a flutter, some sort of a cardiac flutter, but it's not the existence of a heart yet. Can you speak to that? Yes, I can. And and it's interesting how they have to change the terminology of uh, what a heartbeat is or or to justify their abortion uh, desires. Um, A heartbeat means something, you know, and it means something to science and it means something to women emotionally, physically. Uh, in that when you have a heartbeat, it's, we, we often indicate that that's the presence of life. And when we, you know, in dealing with women over 30 years, when I have to tell them there's no heartbeat present, what does that do? It immediately draws an emotional uh, response that my baby has passed. So the heartbeat means something. And they don't want you to believe in a heartbeat because they know it means something. It has an emotional connection, but it also is a physical sign of life. And so they have to change the definition of what a heartbeat is so that they can, uh, you know, get you to believe that this really is nothing but more than what they've always been saying, just a blob of tissue or a blob of cells that has no potential to become what you and I are. And that's uh, human beings, living a, living persons uh, within this world. And so that's the argument they're making, again, playing to the emotions of the people and ignoring the scientific fact that's been established for centuries and decades. We're talking to Dr. Michael Parker. He's an obstetrician, gynecologist. He is a parent. Uh, He and his wife have six children. He's been practicing for 30 years. He knows a little bit about this game. Um, One one last thought on the heartbeat issue. Um, It's not a six-week law. People say, well, Ohio has a six-week law. It's just that that's when the heartbeat is usually detectable is about six weeks. As a pro-lifer and as a physician, are you okay with abortion at four weeks, three weeks, two weeks, one week, five weeks, et cetera, before that heartbeat is detected? Is, is, is that acceptable in your view? In my personal view, no. But as a physician, you, you could make an argument that there's, as, as we said, that there's no life present. And I think that, you know, uh, one thing we have to remember, Bob, is that's not the current state of abortion in the state of Ohio right now. It's been enjoined by a court. So we're still at the 22-week viability ban. But, you know, um, I think it's a reasonable thing to compromise when you say that at six weeks we have a heartbeat. We know that that's a living person there. Prior to the presence of a heartbeat, even though it may be developing, we can't detect it. So we don't know what's going to happen. Um, it, may be, it may be reasonable. But I, I, as I say, I, I think of all abortion as wrong because from the moment of conception that life is created, there is a unique and individual being that's been created that directs its own course of life from that point on that is so unique that it's never been created before and will never ever be created again it should be respected as a human person with that same dignity and respect that we give each other
And I'm glad to hear you separate those out because it's important. Because, again, uh, critics and those who are pro-choice and pro-death, as far as I'm concerned, but they would, they're, you know, they're going to try to say that you are letting your faith and your belief that all life is precious moment for, moment of conception going forward. But as you said that, you know, as a physician, um, you can at least understand the argument that prior to the existence of the heartbeat and the recognition that there is a second body now here that deserves just as much protection as the first body, um, that it can be viewed that now this is indeed a woman who is in the middle of a a medical condition that not that has not necessarily manifested itself in a beating heart and thus a separate life i'm with you i am pro-life and i am catholic and so i agree with it is at the moment of conception but for the purposes of the law and what they're trying to do here it is important that we recognize that and this is what they tried to exploit by the way with the uh, tragic situation of the uh uh, 10-year-old rape victim from last year that we learned about. They claimed that she found out she was pregnant one day after six weeks, and then therefore she had to drive and be transported to uh, to Indiana to to you know to receive an abortion. These emotional types of things, like I said, are being exploited by those who wish to have abortion at any time for any purpose on demand. You're absolutely right, and it's sad and tragic that they have to exploit that and. Um, you know, again, play to that emotional side. Um, they, they want us to rely on science, but they want to rely on emotion. And so we, as you know, either faithful or ideological physicians who look at the science of pregnancy, uh, which is the normal response of a, of an, of a, of a physiological response, it's not a disease, um, we, can, we can say that, you know, uh, yes, it's tragic that this happened, but we don't know what the outcome would have been from that girl because you coerced her or, or made her think that her only option was having an abortion. And so, um, again, they're playing to the emotions and not necessarily to the science of what's going on. Let's go from that earliest point in pregnancy and the recognition of the heartbeat to much later. You mentioned 22-week viability. I'm going to read a quick exchange on Twitter, Dr. Parker, that I would love your opinion on. Um, those on the left, and in particular those who are pushing for the passage of this amendment, claim things like this, quote, literally no one aborts fully formed babies. It does not happen. Here's what is extreme, banning all abortions before many women even know they're pregnant and having no exceptions for rape. Count, um, uh, State Representative Josh Williams responded to that saying, Public information clearly shows that 1% of Ohio abortions is post-21 weeks. Second, the reason that is so low is because it's only legal for the life of the mother at that point. Now they want to add health of the mother and open it up. This is not misleading. It is clear from the amendment language. So, Dr. Parker, I'd like you to address the first part first, the claim that literally no one on the pro-choice side wants to abort fully formed babies. How often do we see, and at what point do you describe or would you define fully formed of the, uh, of the, of the unborn child? Well, you know, the, the development of the child is, is progressive, and we know that our, our brains are not fully formed until we're almost 27 years old. So I think that's a, a misleading term that, that we're using there. Um, if there, if, if there are no abortions after the viability ban, then why do we have the terms partial birth abortion? Uh, why do we have the, the term, uh, for, uh, dismemberment abortion that the state of Ohio needs to regulate? Mm 
They, they this, would argue, Dr. Parker, if I may, they would argue there is no such thing as partial birth abortions. And I know there are, and I know the procedure, and I've mm-hmm. talked about it and described it in gruesome right. detail on this program before, but they're saying those are so rare as if to not even exist. Is that accurate? Well, if you're saying that they're rare, you're saying that they exist. Um, that's just a, a part of the word. You know, they're rare, but they exist. But what this, what they intend to do with this constitutional amendment is basically this, Bob. They want to create a monopoly for Planned Parenthood and the ACLU to control the state of abortion in Ohio by giving the rights to determine when viability occurs to the physician who's treating that woman, basically the abortionist, and that the state of Ohio essentially cannot pass any regulations that will regulate the safety of abortion, uh, the timing of abortion, uh, or any regulations as to 24-hour waiting periods, parental consent laws, uh, or, uh, or abortions for minors. They're looking to get monopoly, uh, uh, card blank, uh, you know, control over abortion in Ohio. And if this is passed, there will be late trimester abortions. The second point I want to make, Bob, and this is very critical, okay. there is no need to perform an abortion, which is the intentional killing of the baby, after 22 weeks, that baby can be delivered either naturally or through a surgical procedure that respects the life and dignity of that baby, as well as, uh, you know, uh, preventing the harm or death to the mother. In fact, it would probably be more dangerous for a woman to have an abortion after the point of viability than it would be to have a natural delivery or a surgical procedure to deliver that baby in a, in a state that does not destroy the life of that baby. That's extraordinarily important, and I'm glad to hear you say that and to explain that. Um, The last element to this that I guess I wanted to ask you about uh, and take advantage of your expertise in this area, Dr. Parker, is the the pain-capable element. At what stage Mm -hmm. in gestation is the baby considered to be pain-capable, where they can feel the procedure, in other words, the... uh, dilation extraction, the dismemberment, the whatever it is you want to call it that is done to that uh, child, that defenseless child, and they can feel every bit of it. At what point in the gestation does that happen? Well, Bob, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that, and, and I've always felt that babies can feel pain or, or some type sense of reaction uh, to its environment, even from some of the earliest stages, somewhere around 14, 15, maybe 18 weeks. Um, it, just dealing with thousands of pregnant women, I can see the baby respond to external stimuli when I'm either doing an ultrasound uh, or when I'm examining the woman. That baby is capable of sensing its environment. If it can sense its environment, it can sense pain. And so I would suspect somewhere around 18 to 20 weeks, that baby is starting to have that sensory of pain. So... At that point, you know, because we're, we're getting close in that area to, you know, to viability, as you say, at 21, 22 weeks, that, that a baby can be delivered healthy, uh, you know, uh, even though it would be premature, but that baby can be delivered uh, either naturally or by surgical procedure that is safer for the mother and so forth. If that baby then, after that 15, 16, 17, whatever weeks it is, can feel pain, how can that be legally justified? How can any medical professional who is bound by, even if it's only ceremonial, the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, how can somebody do harm to a being that can feel pain and experience what is being done to it in that environment? Well, Bob, I think that the the thing that you have to uh, look at is that the person who's doing that doesn't see it as a human being. Um, If they saw it as a human being, they would realize that 
the, the abortion is killing of that child and causing pain on that child during that procedure. Uh, so if you're not seeing the person worth dignity and respect, it's very easy for you to do that because uh, you really don't have a conscientious objection to causing that pain or harm to that baby. Uh, and that's sad to say that, that, that we have people in the medical profession, I, what we call the healing art, uh, is committed to the destruction of human life even after the baby can feel pain. Fully formed uh, head, fully formed limbs, fingers, toes, central nervous system, which of course allows pain to be felt, and yet they don't see it as a human being. I, I wonder what they see it as. I mean, you know, I, we talk about this sometimes too, uh, Dr. Parker. Fetus, to my knowledge, is is Latin for the the term offspring. Um, if it's not your offspring, which is your child, then what is it? If it's not a human child within you that is part of your offspring, even if you don't want to call it a child and you want to call it a fetus, that's what it means. Then what is it if they can't if if they can't accept it as being human? Well, I think if you listen to the language of the uh, abortion side, they're calling it a parasite. They're calling it an attacker on the woman. Uh, it's somebody who has invaded her body and that she has a right to dismiss or to get rid of. Uh, they take negative terms towards the fetus or the or the baby that's growing within them, and 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 they do it again to justify their behavior. Uh, if it's seen as a negative for the woman, then I'm justified in getting rid of it. Um, in you know when when you and I were probably growing up, we used to always speak in affirmative terms about the baby. It's it's a bun in the oven. It's a blessing from from God. Uh, we always spoke positive. Now. We hear the language that's negative. It's it's uh, it's a burden for the woman. It's an attack on her body. Uh, it's something that's going to cause her death and harm. Uh, they have to do this to justify their positions for abortion through all stages of pregnancy. Yeah. You, sadly, every word you just said is true, and that is exactly what they're doing, and it's exactly how uh, how they are doing it. Which is why we're glad to have you uh, trying to set the record straight about what really goes on with the pregnancy and uh, and and why um, it is so such an affront to everything decent and uh, and to science and to a belief in life to, that uh, this amendment might pass on November seventh. So thank you for countering the lies and the misinformation and the deceptive information that is being pushed out there. Uh, uh, thank you for helping lead us in the vote no on issue one on November seventh campaign and keep up your great work, Doctor Parker. Oh, thanks, Bob, and keep up your great work, too. Thank you yeah. for having me on again. Thank you. God bless. Dr. Michael Parker, he's, uh, he's, a, he's an OBGYN. He's been doing it for a very, very long time, and he speaks the truth. We're coming up on the top of the hour news. If you would like to react to and respond to any of the great conversations we have had already between Jim Jordan, Dr. Piper, and Dr. Parker, uh, we'll be open for business after the top of the hour. Always right, Radio this hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I 
have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay, there is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, seven minutes after 11 o'clock. Um, earlier this morning at the very top of the show, we had Congressman Jim Jordan. Sometimes when you have somebody who's as busy as he is running the Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Committee and being on the Oversight Committee, you take them when you can get them. So, because I know a lot of people missed it, and yesterday being as important as it was with the testimony of the Attorney General Merrick Garland, I want to share this with you. If you missed it, You're going to hear it for the first time. If you already heard it, it was good. You should probably hear it again. But this is my conversation from early this morning with Jim Jordan. Told Congressman Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who ran yesterday's nearly six-hour session with Attorney General Merrick Garland, joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Uh, Mr. Chairman, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm fine, Bob. Good to be with you. So he declared, I'm not the president's lawyer. And uh, yeah. I thought you did a phenomenal job of saying, really? Then why are all of your actions de- seeming to uh, to favor the president and to uh, avoid any speculation or any uh, prosecution potentially of the president by actually going after um, uh, uh, his son, Hunter Biden? And, Mr. Jordan, I, I, I'm really blown away by the fact that they allowed the most serious of charges to expire by way of yeah. the, um, yeah. you know, yeah, by way, by way of the uh, statute of limitations. They allowed the most serious because those would be the one. I'm talking about the charges against Hunter that would have warranted and naturally in the course organically led to an investigation of what the president knew at the same time. Yeah, Burisma gets you to the White House. They let the statute of limitations expire for the tax years where he had a huge liability, owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. They just let that run, just let it expire. Uh, and and, and th- th- those were the years 14 and 15 that dealt with the Burisma income. So I, I say this all the time, but th- these four facts, I think, just show how, how I think, simplify the picture. First, fact number one, Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Burisma, uh, makes a lot of money, millions of dollars. Uh, fact number two, he wasn't qualified to be on the board of Burisma. And not my words, not your words. That's what he said. He said he got on the board largely because of his last name, the brand, as Devin Archer said in the, in the deposition, his business partner. Third fact, the Burisma executives asked Hunter Biden, can you weigh in and help us with the pressure we are under? Can you communicate with D.C. and make that happen? Fact number four, Joe Biden does just that. He leverages your tax dollars, my tax dollars, the folks I represent, American tax dollars. He leverages American tax dollars to get the prosecutor who was applying the pressure on Burisma to get that individual fired. And here's what's so interesting, and I said this yesterday, that last fact totally comports with what was in the 1023 form. What the confidential human source told the FBI and the FBI recorded in the 1023 form, the same form they didn't want to let us have access to. Remember how they drugged their feet, redacted it, no, no, you can't see it? It it all squares up, and so then what does David Weiss do? He says, for those tax years dealing with that set of facts, we're not gonna we're gonna let the statute of limitations run. They would that would never happen for any other American. Any of your listeners would have to pay those taxes, but Hunter Biden didn't have to because it was gonna lead to the White House. 
which is exactly why this is the most corrupt Department of Justice in the history of the United States. And I say that knowing that the previous Democrat President Barack Obama's Attorney General called himself the President's wingman. I mean, literally sure there to to cover for anything and everything that was uh, illegal or corrupt or questionable going on at the executive level. Now, I want to go back to a little bit of you. I've got so much ground to cover here with you in very limited time, so I, I appreciate you being here. Representative Nels yesterday slammed him, made him watch and listen to what we have all played and listened to many, many times, Joe Biden arrogantly bragging about how he got the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma, the energy company that his son sat on the board uh, of because of his uh, last name and the influence and the access to Washington. So he made him watch that and, uh, and then questioned him. And he said, if this isn't quid pro quo, I don't know what is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be critical here, Congressman Jordan, because I wanted to hear him squirm and answer that. Congressman Nels kind of basically answered it for him and, yeah. uh, and kind of cut him yeah. off. I, I know it's hard because you guys are limited in the time, and if you let a witness filibuster answers, then you can't ask more questions. But I think sometimes right. we need to let them talk, and I wanted to hear him explain that video away. He didn't get an opportunity yeah. to. No, I, I think you're. I think you're. You're right. Uh, uh, Congressman Nels was, I think, making a good point, and he got he got fired up about it, as as I think most people would. But uh, yeah, you, you, it is nice sometimes if, if there's a, a little opportunity for the for the witness to respond. Um, so did I, I did, did yesterday's events cut deep enough then into into the attorney general to expose that obvious fact? That's, I guess, what I want people to take away, and I don't know if they did. Well, remember what remember what the attorney general his answer most of the time was ongoing investigation, internal yeah. deliberations, or you'll have to ask David Weiss. Those were his three key responses. So David Weiss is scheduled to come on October 11th. Uh, they've committed to that. We'll see if they keep their commitment. Um, we are in the process trying to interview a number of other people. We've already interviewed four people who were part of the investigation into Hunter Biden. Two FBI agents who were the whistleblowers that came forward. Two, uh, excuse me, two IRS agents who were the whistleblowers that came forward, and then two FBI agents who were also part of the case, Mr. Sobosinski, Ms. Holly. We've talked to them as well. So we want, there's a number of other people we want to talk to at the DOJ prior to talking to uh, uh, Mr. Weiss, but he is now scheduled. They made a commitment. We'll see if they honor their commitment to show up on October 11th. Okay, so uh, again, a lot of ground here. So, so obviously, David Weiss uh, being appointed as the special prosecutor here by by Merrick Garland was done to specifically ensure that the that President Biden was protected. Let's talk about some of the other issues that were addressed yesterday. Uh, specifically, let's talk about the uh, targeting of pro life groups. This was this was pretty fiery. Chip Roy went after him pretty hard, pointing out that the DOJ had prosecuted 126 instances of crimes by pro life groups, only four by pro choice groups that were far more violent and 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 vandal with uh, vandalism included as well um what, what was your impression of of whether or not uh, again the attorney general was able to defend that or explain that away well the, the facts are all on our side no no i mean he he, he sort of let it let it go and give some of his uh, kind of filibuster type answers in, in, in there but but the fact is what what uh, Congressman uh, Roy pointed out is exactly the case, and this bias towards the other side's position, we saw that with the with the Supreme Court justices when the Dobbs decision was leaked, and the pressure and intimidation efforts that was uh, that was uh, orchestrated against uh, the the Supreme Court justices at their homes in direct violence. You and I talked about this. So there's yeah, while while they may have prosecuted a couple times when the left went after churches or pro life crisis uh, pregnancy centers. The, it, the vast majority is the other way around. And when they come after someone who's pro-life, well, I mean, they raid their home like they did Mark Halk. Uh, 
And of yeah. course, when that trial, when that case went to went to trial, he was acquitted in like an hour. So yeah, definitely, there's a bias against the pro life, but there's a bias against conservatives, whether it's coming after uh, conservative speech, whether it's uh, the double standard on who gets prosecuted, just, or or the just Catholic, the fundamental the Catholic one. question as well that uh, course, Representative Andrew of brought course. up. Of course, and 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 then the, the the one that we pointed out yesterday at the front end of the yesterday's hearing, uh, David Weiss is a special counsel who is obvious his, his role is to protect President Biden, and then Jack Smith, on the other hand, is a special counsel whose role is obviously to attack President Trump, President Biden's political opponent in the in the I mean his opposition in the presidential race. Like you can't have more of a double standard than that. No, absolutely not. We're talking with Congressman Jim Jordan in the wake of yesterday's nearly six-hour testimony from the Attorney General Merrick Garland. So many of us have been waiting to get Garland up on that stand, but you're right. He spends almost six hours uh, deflecting the questions, not answering them, saying, that, you know, this is an active investigation, I can't comment. And, of course, the game he plays is he has essentially put almost every major player in all of these events under investigation, and then gets to sit up there and say, well, it's an active investigation, yeah. I can't comment on it. So, I guess my point is, or my question to you, Congressman and Chairman of the Judiciary, is was anything accomplished yesterday, given the fact that the AG was able to deflect all of those questions and really has, has to answer for nothing? Well, I think I think we got a few things that we did get answered. Like, one of the questions I asked him was, did you consider anyone else? And, it, and it's, it's like, so David Weiss, the guy who presides over an investigation where you let the statute of limitations run, where you tip off the defense counsel when you're getting ready to issue a, a search warrant, when you slow walk the investigation according to all the witnesses we've talked to, and on and, on, and they put together the crazy plea deal that the, that the judge declined to accept. That's the guy that you make special counsel. And I asked him, did you consider anyone else? And he said he hadn't. It was either going to be no special counsel or David White, which, again, I think underscores this, this, this idea that they were going to sweep this all under the rug, but for two things. Two whistleblowers that came forward and a judge in Delaware who called BS on their crazy plea deal. And, but for that, this thing would have been done with. It had been over. Nothing there. Uh, it would have all been settled. But, but they, 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 frankly, I think, got caught, and the whistleblowers came forward, and the judge declined to accept the plea deal. So I do think we got some additional facts on the table. We're going to continue to dig there. And, of course, Chairman Comer, as part of our impeachment inquiry, Chairman Comer is looking to get more access to more business records. And so we'll continue to pursue uh, that angle as well. Chairman Smith and the Ways and Means Committee, some of the information that Mr. Shapley and Mr. Ziegler, the whistleblowers, have brought to the Ways and Means Committee has to be voted on by the Ways and uh, by that committee to be released to the public because it's confidential taxpayer information. And so they're going to move in that, in that direction, I believe, and we'll get more information there. Now, the world, Congressman Jordan, does not live on Twitter, but I'm just, you know, it's it's a place to kind of get at least a cross-section of opinions on things. And most of the conservatives I read on Twitter yesterday are saying, when will he be impeached? Obviously, we know next week, the 28th, is going to be the first hearing for the Biden impeachment inquiry anyway. But people say after what they watched and watched him obstructing justice yesterday and probably perjuring himself in a number of different ways, uh, they're saying the same thing about uh, uh, Attorney General Garland. Do you believe that is something that is still possible and and maybe probable well i think we i think we we're, we're focused on the impeachment inquiry uh you, you know and you think about the executive branch and the various agencies the head of the executive branch of course is the president of the united states and so that's that's where the impeachment inquiry focus is um that's where uh, the, the the speaker mccarthy designated uh, that that we're going to be in this phase of, of oversight we've talked about the distinction there is that courts now say okay congress is doing the house is doing their work under uh, something that's exclusively and expressly a power that they have under the Constitution, which is the impeachment power. 
and the courts are more inclined to look at that and say if there's a dispute with the executive branch, they're, they're much more likely to side with the House on us getting access to witnesses and documents. So that's why we're in that phase, because we think the facts warrant us going to that phase. So we're going to focus there. But, of course, there's several of these agencies where we think they're, the, the secretary running that respective agency has done a terrible job. My orcas is at the top of the list. Merrick Garland, as you point out, we're, we got all kinds of problems and concerns that we see with, with the way he's run things. Uh, Buttigieg, the way he's ran the transfer. I mean, you could just keep going. But it's a reflection of this administration because, as we've talked before, I don't know that they've done one thing right. Um, just look at the news today and see what's happening on our border. I, I mean, this is almost a daily thing now we've seen for almost now three years. So this is how incompetent, how bad, how well, – I don't, I don't even say it's incompetent. I think the border is definitely intentional. So, um, I do, too. But we're going to, we're, I think the focus is on, of course, the, the president of the United States. Okay, and and, and I, that, that is certainly clear. If, if the president were to be impeached and, and, and to go through all of this, it would expose a lot of the things done by the people beneath him that he has appointed in these very important positions. I'm glad you brought up the border. Let's talk about two different borders. I want to play a clip here that involves a border that is in Eastern Europe. Over the 583 days of war, between February 24th, 2022 and the end of the month, that averages $6.8 billion per month, or $223 million per day. There's a lot of things that we need to fix in our country before we borrow money to try to perpetuate a war in another country. And, of course, the Senator Rand Paul talking yeah, about new well aid to Ukraine being included in the uh, upcoming budget bill and in the budget battle. Many are saying if there are any Republicans who vote, well, anybody who vote to send more than the $113 billion that the White House has confirmed that has already been spent on the Ukrainian battle and protecting their border from invasion while doing nothing about ours, uh, then these people need to get out of Washington. You're your thoughts on that whole mess? Yeah, I think Senator Paul's right on right on target um, because, in the end, it comes down to a fundamental question: What's the objective? What's the goal here? What, what, how do we define success? I mean, we've I, I know we've talked before. Is, is is it Ukraine has to get, or excuse me, Russia has to get out of the eastern eastern Donbass region? They call it in Ukraine. Uh, do they have to get out of Crimea? What? What, I mean, remember, they've had Crimea since 2014. They took that under, under President Obama, for goodness sake. So w- what is the objective? What is the goal? No one can tell us. No one can define, okay, once we get to here, we would stop sending money. So it's just like, I'm not going to continue to send. There's no way. I haven't voted for, I don't know how many of these things I voted against. So we can't, we can't, we can't, uh, uh, if we can't define the goal, how, how, why should we keep uh, continue to send American tax dollars there, particularly when, as you point out, we got so many concerns here, uh, like our southern border. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, thousands upon thousands of Venezuelans are riding in on trains now. Now there's thousands yep. of 7,000 Venezuelans crossed the into Eagle Pass, I think, in 72 hours. Uh, we've got videos of Border Patrol agents getting uh, getting these people off of buses and saying, go ahead, you're free. Somebody says, can I go to Chicago? You can go wherever you want. We, we don't care. They literally have, have, have given up. Many of them because they have no they have no direction and they have no directives. Are they allowed to hold them? So they're basically saying, you know, you got people coming in from 165 different countries, people on the terror watch list, people who are cartel members, drug runners, human traffickers, and they're being let off yeah. the buses and they're being told go where you want to go because there's just no way for them to even begin to process all of these quote unquote phony asylum claims. So you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, this is. I hate throwing, you know, invectives around, but, but this is kind of treasonous. This is an intentional surrendering of American sovereignty. We are allowing our country to be invaded. If these people were all from one country, 
If all of these 5 million plus who have crossed illegally into this country in the last just two and a half years of the Biden administration were yeah. all from one country, we would call it an invasion. But because they're, they're scattered over 165 countries, it's not an invasion, Congressman? No, it makes, uh, it makes no sense. This is why I think in the, in the funding bill that is coming up, we should insist on one thing. No taxpayer money can be used to process and release any new migrant into the country. Just stop it. Like, say, enough. Just stop it and say, okay, Chuck Schumer, here's the bill. We're going to send that over there to you. If you, if you think it's more important to allow this un, un, open border and, and this unlimited amount of migrants come in the country, if you think that's more important than, and, and you're going to shut down the government for that, okay, go tell that to the folks in New York. Go tell that to Mayor Eric Adams, who gave the speech two weeks ago, talked about how bad the situation was in his city. Go have a debate with your Democrat mayor in your hometown. That's the kind of thing that should be put on this bill. That one simple thing, like we will not use any taxpayer money to process in any way and release any new migrants into the country. You just stop it. And until you do that, they're going to keep coming until you send a message. And so we should insist on that. That is the one thing we could focus on right now that is totally beneficial for our country, for Republicans, for Democrats, for Americans. Focus on that. And uh, I just hope we can round up the votes to do that because that, that's where I want to go with this spending bill we're debating right now. Congressman, will you vote against any bill that does not contain that? And will you vote against any bill that does contain more aid for Ukraine? I'm not going to vote to send more aid to Ukraine, and I am, am for doing – now, we we got colleagues who want to put more in the bill. Uh, they want to they try to address some spending and some other things. Okay, fine. I, I'm fine with that too. But one thing I've learned in politics is that one really good issue beats 15 pretty good issues every time. And so sometimes what you have to do is focus on the most pressing thing we see right now, the most pressing thing we see right I'd say there are two. But, again, it's usually best to focus on just one issue at a time when you're dealing in these big political fights. The two big issues are the border I just talked about and, of course, the fact that they're weaponizing the government against we the people. But let's focus on the border because you've got a Democrat mayor in the, in the president of the Senate and the, and the minority leader of the House, his hometown, who said enough is enough, we can't handle this. That, to me, seems to be so, so clear that we should focus on that one issue and no Ukraine funding in this, just that one issue. I feel like this is deja vu when I ask you this last question because I've asked you this mm-hmm. question in many border, uh, uh, excuse me, budget battles over the course of the last several years. Are you willing to shut down the government over those principles? Uh, I don't want to shut down the government. What I want to do is fund the government with that one issue on it. I know you don't want to, but I mean, but what I'm asking, what I'm asking is, will Republicans in the House though be willing to hold fast, even if it means shutting down the government? Because typically, the Republicans always take the blame. No matter who's in charge, they take the blame whenever there's a government shutdown or threat thereof. So, but 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 good question, Bob. But I think this is one of those situations. If you did it the way I just described, Mm -hmm. uh, if if there's a shutdown, Chuck Schumer takes the blame. Democrats take the blame because it's like, are you kidding me? Your own mayor said he 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 was. Uh, we can't take any more people. They're getting ready to what? I think put put a big tent city in the national park up there. I mean, yep. it's like, what are you talking about? Like, th- that's how clear and singularly focused you have to be in these in these big fights over the over the budget uh, as we get to the end of the fiscal year. And to me, that is just it's it's so obvious in my mind. And I'm trying to convince my colleagues to uh, to go that route. 
Well, I certainly hope they hold fast. I do, even though they're going to be called pro Putin if they don't want to send the money in this uh, next bill to Ukraine. Uh, it's uh, there, there, there have to be priorities. I think you outlined them very, very well. I've been called everything. I've been called every name you can imagine. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. We, we shouldn't be sending money to you, any more money to Ukraine. Certainly not without knowing what the freaking goal is. And uh, and then of course this 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 border issue I think is just so obvious. Why we well, wouldn't pick that one simple fight and 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 stand firm on it. I do not know. The two-tiered system of justice was exposed yesterday. We've always known it was there, but it was really, really exposed yesterday in six hours with Merrick Arlen. So thank you for doing that for us. You bet. And we'll, th- and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, sir. All right, that was uh, this morning right out of the top of the 9 o'clock hour. That's why I know a lot of people missed it, so I wanted to share it with you here in the 11 o'clock hour. We'll take a time out here, then we'll come back if you want to react. 216-901-0945. Keeping you informed. Among the uninformed, always write radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, 11.34. i got time for some calls here before the uh, 11.45 mark when we ask O'Reilly to carry us home to the top of the hour, and he'll carry you into some Kirk, some Prager, some Gorka, some uh, Seculo, and some... Uh, and some officer Tatum, so stay right here on AM 1420, The Answer, particularly if you're interested in the uh, testimony yesterday by Merrick Garland. We barely scratched the surface in my conversation with Jim Jordan. I wish we had a lot more time on that, but we do what we can. We're going to go to uh, Akron. Larry, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Larry, fire away. Well, good morning, Bob. You know, good morning, Larry. Uh, one thing, I've, I've been listening to these politicians for years, mm-hmm. and one thing I've noticed, they will not give you a straight Yes or no answer. They are deflected. Secondly, uh, one of the things I like to say is, hello, Bob? Yeah, I'm listening to you, buddy. Go ahead. Okay. And on Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, based on the, the latest census, we've given each citizen over there at least $3 million apiece. So that's what we need to boil it down to. How much money is being spent per person? Is that accurate? Not on the one. I, I don't yeah, know what the population of Ukraine is. About 37, uh, 37 million. So 37 million people divided. So you did $113 billion divided by 37 million people and came out to about $3 bucks a person. That's correct. That's wild. That's wild. Obviously, I know that's, you know, you, we're not giving the money to the individual people, uh, but, but that is very interesting when you phrase it that way. You know, we, we, yeah. we, we, we I think we, generally speaking, we get blinded um, by by numbers like billions anymore, as if you know we, they don't hold any meaning for us. We don't understand exactly how much money is in a billion dollars, much less a hundred and thirteen billion dollars, much less. You know, we just uh, we're talking about the one point five trillion dollar budget deficit, which is why we can't send any more money to Ukraine. I think people get blinded by that. They don't realize exactly how much money we're talking about here and how we just simply cannot sustain that course. That's correct. I mean, if you boil it down to per person, you'll say, wow, that what we were really giving away. Yeah, I t- I t- I'm glad you did that, Larry. Thank you for the call, my friend. I appreciate it very much. That's a very good point you just made. If it comes down to three, I'm not doing the math, at least not live on the radio, but $113 billion equating to roughly, you know, we do that sometimes here when we talk about the debt. How much debt is every American citizen in if you divide the $33 trillion, which again, you can't, you can't quantify that in the mind of a normal person. You can't quantify how many 
um, are in 33. You ever see those memes? Hey, Seth, you ever see those memes online where, where like somebody will take like a trillion dollars and stack them up if you were to stack a dollar bill on top of one another till you get to a trillion dollars or whatever? It's like, yes. You know, reaches almost outer space or some crap like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, now do that times, you know, 33, 33 trillion it's it's not possible to comprehend what that means but if you do that math 33 trillion divided by you know what's the roughly population of america now about seven and a half seven and a half uh, 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 billion people or um uh, i'm sorry 350 or 350, so million yeah. people in yeah. america i'm thinking of seven billion worldwide right roughly seven and a half billion people on the planet 330 350 somewhere in that million people so people can divide and say every American is X number of thousands of dollars in debt. And it's a little bit more, you know, easy to understand when you break it down like that. But still, we don't conceive of exactly how much money we are sending over there. We cannot understand what $113 billion looks like unless we see it in one of those memes, unless we see it like in pallets of cash, like we sent to Iran under Obama. Well, should we see what what a billion dollars looks like in pallets of cash, and then multiply that times thirty three? It's really, really hard to understand. And people are just like, "Oh, we have to support Ukraine. We have to support Ukraine. We're humanitarians. We have to stop people from being, you know, slaughtered. We're not pro Putin. We're anti Putin." And it's like, yeah, all of those things are true. We don't want we don't want Putin to succeed. We don't want Russia to invade. We don't want people to die, and we do support Ukraine. But we cannot financially continue on the course that we are on. We just cannot, particularly even if we were solvent, even if we were completely solvent, if the United States was not $33 trillion in debt and we were running on a balanced budget, uh, 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 no budget deficits, no massive amount of debt, if we were just completely sol- solvent, I still we still couldn't and shouldn't be spending because that's how you become insolvent. That's how you end up underwater when you're spending money you don't have. I mean... I'm getting off into the weeds here about American family budgets, but you know, you look at what your debt is, what's your revolving debt versus what your fixed debts are, like your mortgage, you know, your car payments, your insurance, and so forth. If you if you are, let's say, you're meeting that, and you're able to save a little bit of money each month, or maybe a little bit of money every couple of months to start to put away in a nest uh, egg, you know, in a savings account, and so forth. You can't just say, oh, wow, I feel bad for something that happened somebody far away. I'm going to go into debt from my solvent state right now, or at least my manageable state right now. I'm going to go into debt by uh, you know amounts of money that I can't even fathom paying back in order to help somebody somewhere else. You're just not going to be able to do it. From time to time, we come on this program and we ask people for donations. Donate to this cause or that cause. Donate to Preborn. Donate to CFFS. Donate to this. You know, and we're like, wouldn't expect you to go into debt to do it. If you have money to spend in a charitable way, choose this charity, we would say. Don't go into debt to, get, to give or donate money to people for charitable reasons that you don't have. You can't do that to yourself. That would, that would be highly irresponsible. So why would we do it as a nation? That's where we are. Uh, BJ in North Olmsted. Hi, BJ. Go ahead. Yes, Bob. Uh, uh, in regards to Garland, but I'd like to make another point. Chuck Schumer yesterday did a wonderful thing when he changed the dress code for that new con- uh, senator coming into office, so you can go any way you want in shorts and T-shirts, yeah. I guess. Yeah, Susan Collins uh, said she's going to show up in a bikini. I'd like to make something up a uh, point here. Garland yesterday, when he was being questioned, 
for some reason, he went to the Holocaust that his family was in, and his family members died. And out of context of all that, we're suddenly seeing movies about the Holocaust on uh, Turner uh, movies, and this is coming up more and more. And I have a very sad feeling that I think anti-Semitism is on the growth here, and if if these uh, unfortunate people that had relatives in the Holocaust are going to bring that up. I'm afraid it's going to start to stimulate anti-Semitism like we've never seen it in this country. I've spoken to this before and defended the the Semitic people, but if you're going to go ahead and keep throwing this in people's faces, you might raise a ghost from the past that will come back to haunt you like it did the poor soul's in the Holocaust in Germany back in the 1930s and 40s. So be very wary of what's going on right now and who's running this government, the head of our Federal Reserve, Garland, Schumer. And I'm fearful that this is going to cause a revolution or will be caused because we're allowing millions of people to come in in trains from South America. Why? Why? Be aware, America, this is your country, and if you don't fight for the Constitution, it is your fault when you're enslaved by the bankers. Thank you for your time. BJ, thank you for making the call. I appreciate it very much. Charlie is in Brownhill next. Hi, Charlie, go right ahead. Hey, what a great, great show. So many great topics. Talk forever. Thank you. Very very educational. Um, Dr. Parker said something that I you know, I, I firmly believe. He hit the, the nail on the head with the... With really the left or the pro-aborts, they don't believe these are humans. And we fought a, a civil war over the whole the same issue. Who's a human? And we tore our country apart. And now we're doing it again. It's just uh, it's the same thing. People have their hearts have to be changed. And we have to say these are our offspring. These are human offspring. You can't just kill them without consequences. And I just thought Parker was really right on with that. Yeah, um, I, I I do too. I like Dr. Parker, and he's of course not the only one. Uh, they and I'm glad that Protect Women Ohio, which is you know the organization that's kind of an offshoot of CCV and and Ohio Right to Life and so forth, they're having doctors like him uh, and some others respond and tell the truth about what is going on and the lies that they are using to try to push and promote issues. 